Many years ago, I, uh, as many of you know, had a chance to go overseas for a couple of years to serve in missions. And uh, one thing I haven't shared much about, if at all, was my time at training in uh, near Richmond, Virginia. Uh, went out with uh, about 70 other recent college graduates, just like myself, and uh, had all sorts of great training. And one of the people that we met along the way is a name some, many of you may know, Mike Thompson. Uh, Mike was a longtime seminary professor here at Golden Gate um, <clears throat> until he moved to uh, teach in another state. But when I, I met Mike, I discovered that he came out regularly all the way from Mill Valley to uh, Richmond uh, to be part of these training events, and he paid his out of his own pocket. No one paid for his travel expenses, and he did it because he really wanted to invest in the lives of people like me at that stage of my life. And uh, we uh, bonded and had a, an instant connection because we both grew up in the same state, and uh, that's always fun. And uh, he was just a very warm personality, and to know Mike for most people was to enjoy his company. And I was amazed when he would sit down at the piano. You could just hum a tune, and before long he would be playing it like uh, he was the world's greatest jazz pianist or something. It was amazing. And so we would sing together, and we talked together, and he promised that if any of our group of 70... Um, short-term missionaries wanted to write him while they were out in the field. He made a promise to write back. And uh, I, I'm not much of a writer in that way, and so I never uh, put him to the test. But upon my return two years later, I learned that he indeed fulfilled his promise. And it wasn't just with our group. There were three or four groups every year that he would uh, do that with. So he must have been writing potentially hundreds of people regularly. Well, when I found my way to Golden Gate to start seminary, he was one of my professors, and he taught history, and I loved the way he taught, and uh, one of his expressions was if, uh, the way he liked to test was this way, is that he, he thought if you could teach something to a high school age student, then you had a pretty good grasp and handle on the subject matter. And I, I thought that's pretty good. He even let us make choices. Sometimes we could take a historical character and we could act it out. Um, and, and create our own monologue and dress in costume. And, and uh, that was so much fun to be able to have those options in the classroom. Well, as I was preparing to graduate and about to step into pastoral ministry, I thought I could really use some focused help. And so I, I sat across a breakfast table from Mike down in Sausalito. And as we had our food and we were eating, I, I know him as Mike, not Dr. Thompson, because when I met him, that's what he told us to call him, and I couldn't ever get it out of my head. And so I said, Mike, I've, I've got a question for you. I said, um, you know, I'm about to graduate and start ministry. Would you be willing to mentor me? Because you've meant so much in my life, and I just appreciate you so much. And he kind of, his uh, disarming way, kind of shuffled in his seat, and he says, well, Bryce, I'll tell you. The short answer is no. <laughs> I was like, check. <laughs> I'm ready to go. Um, he said, but what I would rather do instead, instead of mentoring you, is I'll be a spiritual friend with you. And we can meet together and we can talk together and we can pray together and we can help each other in this journey of life with Jesus and in the highs and lows and around the unexpected curves. And that's what I would prefer to do with you rather than to be a mentor. And what was so great is, you know, he was in his own way leveling himself, <laughs> pull 
pulling himself off of the pedestal, and instead of being in front and above me, he was putting himself beside me. And it was so great uh, to know that he would be willing to do that. It, it really has impressed me that you know we all need, spiritually speaking, friends, spiritual friends, who know us well enough, and there's a mutuality in our relating together, that people are able to come beside us and to, in a sense, be offer a pastoral presence to us. Not necessarily with the title of pastor, or with a role in that way, or even educated in such a way, but the gift of God and the desire that He has for His body, brothers and sisters gathered together in community, is that we would, in, in certain ways, learn to pastor one another. We need spiritual friends in an everyday kind of way, so that in the everyday kind of stuff, we are encouraged by someone, we can have others pointing us to God, we can have people when we need them cheering us along our journey, and then we can have people who would provide cautions to us when pitfalls are ahead. And there's there are things ahead of us that might undercut our, our faith, that might undercut and overwhelm our walk with the Lord. We all need such spiritual friends. This is the type of meaningful friendship and mutual care that helps us every day in the walk, in our walk with the Lord. But not everybody has it. And my hope for our church in the months and years ahead, I know that it, it has been real and true for many in the church over the years. And my hope is to see that sort of relating and that web of networking, would, it would be expanded and deepened across our church body. We've been trying to listen to what God had to say through Peter. You remember Peter? You remember Peter, don't you? The one who denied Jesus. The one who uh, had, was the only one who would get out of the boat to walk on water with Jesus. Peter is such a great guy. And he writes a couple of letters to some churches spread out in what we know is today as Turkey. And he writes these people in the first century Roman world that's not... Not unlike, in fact, it's very like 21st century Marin County life in the way that a spiritual person, a Jesus person, a Christ one, a Christian, should live and understand the world in which they live. And uh, we've been looking about uh, what it means he's been describing in First Peter. You can open there if you like. First Peter, the book of First Peter toward the end of the New Testament. He's been, in these recent weeks, we've been looking at understanding that who, what we do flows out of who we are. And we've been spending some time thinking about who are we? What does it mean to really be a Christian? What does it mean to be a part of a church and not just coming to the church? You know, we have all these uh, building needs and these delayed and deferred maintenance needs on the building itself. And it's great to have a church building, but the church building is not the church it's the people gathered that make the church. You need not a building for a church to be and a church to thrive. And we have been learning about who Peter says that we are. He describes us as people who are born again, born again into a new relationship with the risen Jesus, one who is crucified. We've sung about that today. One who is dead and buried into the ground, and three days later he was raised up with power to validate that he really could conquer 
sin. He really could fill the gap that rests between all of us and God. Jesus is the one who came to do that. We then, who in faith confess our sin and begin to walk with Him, Peter describes us as people who are born again into a new relationship with Christ. But then he says because of that new birth, that it at times makes us strangers within the prevailing culture. It doesn't matter where that culture is or at what time of history that culture is. The reality that we live life as a follower of Jesus, there are times when we will feel and understand that we are strangers, that we are out of step with the broader culture around us, and that is okay. That is who we are intended to be because our allegiance primarily and our citizenship is in heaven, not to a particular country. Our first and foremost allegiance is to God Almighty and to our new family. Not only are we born again into a new relationship with Jesus, but we're also been placed into a new family. When you're born, most of us when we're born, we're born into a family. We're born into relationships that matter and that are essential. And so too in the church, we are now members and become part of a new family, an alternative community of love and mutuality and belonging. He describes it as living hope. You have been born again into a living hope. Last week, <clears throat> so interesting, in chapter 2 of First Peter, we looked at that how Peter describes individual Christians as living stones, right? We talked about Jesus being the chief cornerstone and how as a cornerstone in ancient building, a cornerstone would be laid first and then everything that the building would become is built upon and oriented around that cornerstone. And so you better have the right cornerstone placed rightly in your life if your life is going to flourish and thrive in the way God intends it to. Jesus is that cornerstone of your living, but not just of your individual living, but of our collective life together. Peter says it this way. He says, you are like living stones. When Susan and I were in Israel this past fall, uh, it was so great in so many ways. But I remember the prayer of one of our guides as we stood. I don't even remember now where we were at the moment, but we'd been seeing ancient site after ancient site. We went to tell Dan at one point. Um, I don't know what we'll tell Dan, but uh, um, tell Dan. It's an archaeological mound, a tell is, in Israel. And uh, we went to see a 4,000-year-old gate of an old Canaanite city. 4,000 years old. They say it's the oldest known gate on the planet. It was amazing. I mean, we live in a country where things are barely 400 years old. Some things are barely 40 years old, right? And here we were in front of something 4,000 years old. At one point on our trip, our guide prayed, as we have watched God, all of these dead stones that once meant so much... Remind us that in you we are living stones. That's the image that Peter gives of the church. That individual Christians are not just like boulders on a hill all by themselves. That there's an intent that God has for your life 
and putting it into community with others. And he describes it this way, is that your life, that you are living stones, and just like a stone building or a brick building, you put one stone stacked on top of another, on top of another, one life on another, one life on another, so that together, collectively, there is strength, there is purpose. But then part of the question is, well, what is the mortar then that holds uh, the, the stones together? And that is part of what we're talking about today. It's the presence of God. God's very presence among us and our focus on His Word. God's presence among His people and our focus and allegiance to the Scriptures. That's why every time we teach and preach, we always use the Bible. Because it's not in human wisdom that our hope rests. It's in what God has to say and what He is calling us to. You see, the Word of God... The Word of God reflects the person of God. And the person of God is who builds the community of God. The Word of God reflects the person of God, which in turn builds the community of God. There is no Christian community without the living and abiding Word of God, because that is how we know most God's presence among us. Let's read together, shall we? First Peter. I've said there will be times when we'll go back and look um, at uh, some uh, verses that we've already observed. Uh, we're going to do that again today. First uh, Peter chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now these verses are so insightful to us because they, there's a back and forth and an interplay between the Word of God and the life that we are to live as believers together. The Word of God and the life that we are to have as believers. It's who we are in Christ determines then what we do in our communal life together. Notice in verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by what? Obeying the truth, by taking that which God has spoken, that which God has revealed about Himself and about who you are in your humanity, taking that and you, you've taken it to heart and you've allowed the Holy Spirit to purify your life and it's demonstrated through your obedience. You become obedient to God. In the Scripture, obedience is always equivalent to love. We don't, we don't obey out of duty or just because we're told to. We do it because it's an expression that I love you, God. I, I obey you because I love you. So Peter says, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth... Part of this purity is so that you will now love 
one another. So he's gone from the Word of God to who we are in our relating together with a sincere brotherly love, loving earnestly from the heart. Then look in verse 23. It goes back to describing God's Word and, and how we have been born again, not of, not of a perishable seed. When, when you came out of your mother's womb, right? Your life was set. An average lifespan, what is it these days in, Amer- in U.S. culture? 80 years? Depends on if you're a man or a woman, right? A handful of decades most of us might hope to live. But it's limited, right? We all are limited. Our days are limited and numbered. But that's, that's, that's a physical, earthly birth. When God brings birth, it comes from an imperishable seed. And it is a new life that will last forever. And it's based in the foreverness of God's Word. And then notice in verse 1 of chapter 2, he goes back to our life together. He points out various sins. You know, there's a lot of different ways that we can sin and turn away from God. Our thought life can be sinful. Our actions uh, privately can be sinful. This uh, small list that Peter gives are sins that are very intimately involving other people and what destroys community rather than building it up. These are the types of sins that take those living stones and dismantle the walls of God's spiritual house. So Peter says, because of the enduring Word of God, this shapes who you are. And if you are a Christ one, then this is how you're to go and love each other. You love each other earnestly and deeply. You love each other by ridding yourselves of the sins that destroy and undermine the community so that you know what community is. We long for it, but so often we don't really know how to engage in it well. And then he comes back in verse 2 to the Word of God. That we are to be those who crave pure spiritual milk. You ever held a baby crying and hungry? There's only one thing that satisfies a crying baby when they're hungry. Do you know what it is? It's not Nintendo or Xbox. It's not cotton candy. It's the milk. The milk. Am I right, Stephen? It's the milk. (laughs) Craving pure spiritual milk. Saying to God, God, there's nothing that I need or want more that will satisfy the depth of my life than Your very Word washing over me, drawing me to Yourself, purifying me, growing me up in You. This is what everyday pastoral care is intended to convey. It's the idea that we have mutual relationships together and that there's, there's a quality of relationship where you allow people to be in your life and speak into your life, and they allow you to do likewise. There's a mutuality about it. In fact, later on in chapter 2, Peter describes the church and individuals in it as a royal priesthood. That's a heavy thought. <laughs> That's a big thought. But the idea that you and I get to pastor one another, we get to encourage each other to bring strength when we're weak and to cheer each other on. Keep going. I know it's hard right now. Keep going. Look at Jesus, who is a healer of the heart and soul. Look. Keep going. Be careful. What you're thinking about or this thing that you're dabbling in is not going to lead to the happy thing that you think it promises. Be careful. 
We're able to offer cautions to each other, not demanding, right? It's loving, it's gentle. It's the way a shepherd deals with his flock. I want to offer here, just so we have time for the Lord's Supper, I had so much good information, and it's really embarrassing that I even mention this now because you're probably going to leave with more questions than, <laughs> than uh, I help with. But um, I found this so interesting as a, a framework and a helpful guide. Pull out the uh, green sheet in your bulletin that says four liberating truths at the top. <clears throat> and if you have a pen or a pencil, go ahead and pull that out as well. So if this is part of our calling, if we're to be a royal priesthood, we are to be those who love one another, as the Bible says over and over in the New Testament. If you have a a tool at home and you can look up one another in the New Testament, you'll be amazed at all of the ways there's this mutual relationship, not just from a pastor or a, a staff person in a church, but how collectively together as brothers and sisters we are to help each other and to spur one another on to faith and good deeds. It's, it's amazing. Uh, I wish we had time to unpack all that, but we don't. Tough. But we do have time to look at this for a few minutes. How, how might we go about, if I say, yeah, I'd like that kind of relationship. Um, now, there's a lot of other things that should be said. It, it takes time. It takes humility. It takes vulnerability. It takes uh, a level of relationship where you trust the other person. And so there's a lot of other things that can and should be said. But this was so good, I just didn't want to move on without offering it to you. But the root, many say, the root of most of our sin, most of the sin struggles in our life and the things that we tend to give into sinfully, often are motivated and rooted in a lie about God. So we somehow, there's a truth about God, who He is, what He desires in our life, and somehow we're convinced that 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 is not what is right and good, and so we're going to follow and believe and trust this lie instead. So these are called four liberating truths because they're intended to be four great statements that help go to the very heart of some of the basic lies that tend to drive us into sin and away from God. You see, often we exchange the truth about God for a lie because something else, something else comes to matter more in your life than God does. Whatever that is, that becomes an idol in your life. That's when the Bible talks about idolatry and idols. That's what it's talking about. Those things in your life that at any given point become more important to you. And you see, here's why it does it. Why, Why would any of us do it? Because sin makes promises. Sin promises, and when we believe the promises, we think that sin, whatever it is, has more to offer us than God does. That we think it's better for us. Sometimes we struggle with seeking the approval of other, another person or a group of peers. And so we, we think and we believe the promise of sin that if we compromise this deeply held conviction, then this person or this group, then they'll accept me if I could just let this conviction go. You see, it promises us something. And then we realize it doesn't take long before that group or that person They don't really love us because they demanded something that was unhealthy and not right for us. Sometimes we have a wounded ego, especially men, and we can seek to put a salve over that ego through computer pixels in our home, in our private life. 
Sometimes we can have a broken heart. And sin will tell us that if we just medicate that with drugs and alcohol, we can numb the pain and somehow it'll go away. The promise is we don't have to deal with the pain or we can just kind of cover it over. And more often than not, it leads to destruction and decay and heartache. Sometimes in our pursuit of building wealth, that pursuit of wealth can turn into a love of money. And that love of money can replace our love for God. And instead of trusting God for our future, we then put our trust in the building and management of our wealth. And we hear again the Scripture saying that the love of money, the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Evil. Here are four liberating truths that help get to the heart of some of these lies that we are tempted to believe. These come from Tim Tim Chester. Uh, You see the note there at the bottom. But here they are. God is great. So we don't have to be in control. God is great. So we don't have to be in control. So I'm offering these because I want to give you some handles to leave here thinking about is how you might be able to to begin to pastor one another in perhaps more significant ways. So God is great, so we don't have to be in control. When you minister to somebody and you believe that God is great and that you don't have to be in control of someone else's life, that uh, you're able to be relaxed and patient with them in your ministry to them, right? You can give them room to grow and for themselves to walk with God. God is great. So we don't have to be in control. Number two is God is glorious. So we don't have to fear others. God is glorious. So we don't have to fear others. You know, it's a really hard life to live when we're controlled overly so by the opinions of others. When we are not controlled by others' opinions, we are set free to really love people truly and deeply because We can speak truth in love. We can hear truth in love spoken to us. It creates a wonderful reality. But we trust first that God is glorious and worthy of our fear. So we don't have to fear others. We don't have to fear speaking truth because of reprisal, because there's love noted there. Thirdly, God is good. So we don't have to look elsewhere. If we really trust that God is good and that God lovingly provides, as Jim prayed in our offering prayer, I love that so much. Thank you for your provision, God. If we trust that God is good, we don't have to look elsewhere for the deep fulfillment that we yearn and long for because we realize there's no other place that will fulfill us like a growing relationship with Jesus. When we find joy in Christ, we serve Him enthusiastically. We stop avoiding difficult conversations. We stop avoiding messy relationships because we know that God is good. And finally, God is gracious. God is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. (gasps) Really? I don't have to prove myself to you? Really? I don't have to prove myself to God? Are you serious that God really is gracious? I don't know about you, but I'm not sure we have a lot of that in our world today. There's a lot of shaming, and that's increasingly so. There's a lot of finger-pointing, 
doesn't seem to be a lot of dealing in grace one to another. It should be in the church. Because our goal in ministry is to bless, not to impress other people, right? It's to bless, not to impress other people. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And God is gracious. Uh, to thoroughly confuse you, on the back of this sheet is, uh, is a way, kind of a personal barometer. If you're thinking about uh, being a spiritual friend with somebody, this is a way of sort of evaluating for yourself how you're holding these four realities in your life. Are you trusting that God is great and glorious and good and gracious? There are some contrary indicators in the other column that if you would answer yes to those contrary indicators, guess what? That's an invitation to pray that God might build and further buoy up in you these four great truths about God. You know, the Lord's Supper is an ongoing practice for the church that is intended to, in part, weld our lives together. We participate in this. For our church, we do it about once a month. And uh, it seems to be a, a good rhythm for, for many people. It's not all the time where we may be tempted to take it for granted, but it's not too seldom either, so we forget about it. The intent in it, at least in part, is to remind us of the way that God has taken living living stones and stacked them together and are building us together for a particular purpose so that we can demonstrate to the world around us the goodness of God, the gospel of His message. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And God is gracious.